This week on Writers Inc. When I had the idea for Wayward Pines, my first thought after I had the idea was like, that's stupid. That's just, that's crazy. That'll never work. Um, I think it's, uh, it's safe to, it, it's safe sometimes not to like swing for the fences. Um, but there's a lot of uh, amazing rewards and reader interaction you get when you swing the fences. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hey, J.D., you got some books on that shelf behind you now. Yeah, we finally got a bookcase behind me. I've got a couple of my titles up. Um, I don't know if it's going to stay though, because like I, I got this from Home Depot. Like, you know, if you go into Home Depot, they've got like, you know, shelving systems and stuff that you can buy. And if you go in there and you tell them that you're doing like a, a big project, they're like, well, we've got the super top secret department that actually does shelving and closet units and organization and all that. And they come in and they'll plan it for you. And um, so we had somebody come to the house and, you know, she scoped everything out and she gave us these really cool designs you know, we're like 3D graphics showing us what everything would look like. And then they got it here. And like the samples that they showed me were real wood, but the ones they installed are actually melamine. Oh, um, you know, and it's got like little holes drilled in the side so you can move the shelves around. And it, it doesn't look like a built-in to me. Um, so I don't know that we're going to keep them. We're, we're really on the fence about it. Like the idea of having to backstep and, you know, have one more thing in the house we've got to redo. Um, neither of us want to do that. But at the same time, if we're not 100% happy with it, you know, like this is a final forever house. So we want to make sure we get it right. Yeah, you don't want to change your mind, you know, five years out and have to do it all over again. Yeah, exactly. So it may change, I guess is my point. Yeah. So next time you see me, it might be a different bookcase up there. <laughs> nice. What are you working on this week? I'm trying to get my voice back. <laughs> so yeah, like this, this house is like just a contagion central. Um, you know, my, I mentioned last week, my daughter brought home the hand, foot, mouth disease after going to the pediatrician to get her chickenpox vaccine. So we ended up that passed through between my wife and myself. Um, we got that out of the way and we both started feeling sick again. We couldn't figure out why we've had somebody, you know, we've got contractors running around everywhere. Um, but the guy that's been working on our stairs, he said something to me and he was like, his voice was like real low like this. And, and I asked him what was up and he's like, oh yeah, I've been sick for a couple of weeks and I lost my voice. And like, he's been in our house, like every day, like, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, like touching everything and using our, our microwave and like, you know, he couldn't give us a heads up. I mean, like we've got bottles of Perel everywhere because of, you know, everything going on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I just really want this to all, to all be over. Yeah. Hopefully a few more weeks you'll be out of, out of all of it. And well, back I think I'm, ru I'm running out of stuff to catch at this point. Yeah, right. There's only so many viruses out there. I think I've nailed every single one of them now. Uh, I hate to say this, but it might get worse once your daughter goes to school. <laughs> yeah, well, my wife was kind of on the fence about that, too, because like she stayed at home with her mom right up until kindergarten and she never got sick. So then when she went to kindergarten, she got sick all the time because she caught all these things that she never had before. And she ended up missing like so much school. She had to repeat like kindergarten or the first grade or something. Um, so my wife's line of thinking is, well, you know, this sucks, but it's good to get it out of the way now. 
um, you know, so she doesn't run into it later. And a lot of kids, you know, they kind of, they go to daycare. So they deal with this, at, you know, through daycare. Um, so we'll, we'll see my, like, I'm waiting for the day where my wife says, well, I think we're going to the gym today. Cause I, I know she catches a lot of these things from that playroom at the gym. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I'm, I might have to like hose my daughter down outside or something <laughs> back in. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but that, that's why I sound like a frog today. All um, right. Well, you're gutting it out. So you, the show must go on. Absolutely. <laughs> so who, who are we here to talk about today? Who's our exciting guest? Oh, this week we've got a great one. We've got Blake Crouch. Um, and he's, he's a, a favorite of mine. I mean, he's, there, there's very few sci-fi authors that I really, really look forward to like their next book coming out. He's one of them. Um, he reminds me a lot of like Michael Crichton, like back in the day, if you, if you like the old Michael Crichton stuff, I think he's kind of like Michael Crichton 2.0. Um, Dan Suarez is another one along the same lines. We should probably get him on at some point, but he's, he's got some fantastic stuff, but like the, it takes a lot to like, really like get me to read a book where I'm like, I'm not quite sure where this is going. Yeah. I've seen it all. You know, when you work as a book doctor and you know, like I've tooled so many different books, you know, there's only so many different storylines. You've seen them all at, at some point, And I feel like I'm kind of there. Um, so it takes a lot to surprise me, but Blake manages to surprise me. Um, and like reading recursion, like my head hurt, you know, I think when I, when I closed the, the cover on that book, but um, it, it is phenomenal. So I can't wait to hear what he's got to say. Yeah. He, he's also a favorite of mine. And I, I love the fact that he writes what's just true to his heart. Like, he, you know, it's, it's got a sci-fi bent, but there's like horror elements in what he writes and there's like dark fantasy and, and, and just dark realism. And it's just a, it's a really, he's just got a unique voice and I've always enjoyed his stuff. So I was looking forward to the conversation as well. Well, I think you're going to find as we talk to more and more of these, these you know, authors that have broken out and are doing well, um, they, they kind of go through that change when they do decide to, to follow their own voice. Like, you know, like somebody like Blake, he had a lot of books out there before he really got popular and he was trying to fit a mold. You know, he was trying to write what his publisher was telling him they wanted to sell. Um, you know, so, you know, he was ticking boxes for them, not the boxes that he actually wanted to tick for himself. And that comes across in the writing. You know, it's, it's more like doing homework instead of doing a passion project. And I think when he finally decided, hey, you know, I'm just going to write what I want to write. Um, you know, that's where the real stories really started to come out. Did that happen for you? Um, not so much with me. Um, my biggest problem, not necessarily a problem, but I, I got a lot of pushback about doing the horror stuff. Because oh. um, everybody wants me to write thrillers, and the, the thrillers sell, you know, way better. I mean, it's 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 you know exponentially different. Um, but I like bouncing back and forth, um, and I, I've actually got a class that I teach on it at that writers conferences. I'm doing one next week um, about how to successfully bounce between different genres because everybody will try to put you in one and try to keep you there um, because it you know from everybody from your editor all the way down to the marketing people in the bookstore where your book ends up, they all want you to fit and you know again check a certain box. Um, but there are ways to break out of that. Maybe, you know, at some point, maybe we should do a, a show about it and talk about it a little bit. Um, but I, I'm going to stick to it. I mean, I enjoy writing both. I like writing thrillers. I like writing horror. Um, you know, they, they all have suspense, I think, as that common thread. And I think that's what kind of keeps it all going for me. Um, you know, and whether there's, you know, I'm indie publishing or traditionally publishing or hybrid publishing or whatever it is, I know I'll get them out there, you know, one way or the other. So I want to write when I want to write. Yeah. Excellent. It seems to be working for you. So keep doing it. So, so far. <laughs> haven't hit an iceberg yet. <laughs> All right. So why don't we get into the interview with Blake Crouch and then we'll come back on the flip side and uh, talk about some takeaways. Okay. I can't wait. Okay. So if you are listening in real time, Recursion hits the paperback bookstands tomorrow. Uh, so excited to talk about this with you, Blake. Um, I, I, I think a good place to start would be, uh, 
tell me about this, uh, the 40,000 words you cut from this draft <laughs> to finish this book. <laughs> um, yeah, so the first draft, you know, when I wrote it, I had a pretty good sense of what the story was through the midpoint. And then it got pretty fuzzy after that. Uh, but I started writing because usually I'll start writing a book if I if I know what I what the story is to the midpoint. That's a pretty good uh, safety net. And I got to the midpoint, and I just kept writing. Um, and kind of the rest of the book basically unfolded at this hotel memory, which I don't want to be too particular about. I don't want to spoil anything right. for those who haven't read it. But it it just was this really long. Um, kind of protracted scene there, which I liked, but I don't know. I, I, I finished it and then I kind of read through it again and I thought, well, this is really cool, but I just don't feel like it's doing all the things this premise could possibly do. It felt like it, it was still being a little tentative. Um, and so, yeah, I did a, a super painful thing, which was to basically just cut off uh, 40, 45,000 words and throw them in the, uh, cut pages file um, and, and try to push forward and, and, and capture something truly unique and, and mind blowing um, that still came out of this core premise. Yeah. Mission accomplished, man. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. Uh, we, we definitely won't spoil for anyone. Uh, do you ever go back into that cuts file and, and pull those words out for anything? Yeah. I mean, there's stuff I cut from recursion that not from the back half, but like there was a scene just a few days ago um, that I had originally written for recursion and I loved it, but I could feel that it wasn't quite organic to that story, but I saved it. And uh, this new book I'm writing, uh, it just slid in like a hand in glove. Um, so it's all never, never throw away uh, your cut pages. You never know when you might uh, be able to repurpose them. Absolutely. And digitally, there's no reason to get rid of them. No, no. Yeah. Uh, let's um, let's talk a little bit about false memory syndrome. I'm fascinated by this, as I as I know you are. C can you uh, can you tell everyone what it is and sort of how it works into your premise? Yeah, false memory syndrome is, I guess, for lack of a better explanation, a grand extrapolation of the Mandela effect on a global scale. So, the Mandela effect is a real um, phenomenon it was, I think, discovered maybe 15 or so years ago. It's not, it's not terribly old. Um, and it's essentially, it tries to pinpoint this phenomenon that we're all aware of where, for instance, Nelson Mandela, that's where it came from. Some people have a memory of Mandela dying in prison back, I think in the eighties or nineties. And you know, obviously he didn't, but people have that false memory. People have this false memory of, um, a series of books called the Berenstain Bears. In fact, they're the Berenstain Bears. I remember them as being Berenstain. I can still see the the, uh, the cover of those books, and it's spelled a particular way. And you know, there's other instances of this Mandela effect that have been uh, documented. And I just thought, what if what if that went beyond random facts like Nelson Mandela's uh, death or not death in prison and, and uh, obscure children's book series to like people in our lives. Like maybe we have the Mandela effect regarding the person we thought we were married to and they aren't or having kids or the house that we live in or the job that we have. Uh, and then I started thinking, well, what, 
what could possibly give rise to um, to an effect like that? And that took me down the path of uh, of this memory chair that Helena creates. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing. And uh, we were, I think, we were both born in the '70s. And as I'm reading Recursion, yeah. I'm having yeah. this thought about. Uh, I'm like, I'm wondering what you think the difference is between memory and nostalgia, because anything for the eighties or nineties right now, I'm a sucker for And, and, mm-hmm. but, but those aren't my memories. So how do you, yeah. how do you reconcile those? Well, I think nostalgia has uh, a lot more emotion to it than um, a, uh, than just a random memory. Nostalgia suggests that it is, um, well, I, don't know, there, it, I think it's, is it Greek? I think, I think nostalgia comes from a, from a Greek word that uh, essentially means the ache of an old wound, um, which I think is so beautiful. In other words, it's, it's a memory of maybe a more perfect time or, or at least it has that sort of sheen of perfection in our minds now. And it's something that we have an almost uh, unrealistic, view of and, and we sort of idealize it I, 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 that's what i think nostalgia is I, I think it's kind of the idealization of memories yeah is, is it true uh that memories get reprocessed every time they're recalled so a, a memory that you have five years ago is going to be different than that exact in quotes exact same memory today yeah the mere act of recalling a memory and re-remembering it changes the memory it changes how we how the neurons interplay and, and all work in concert to bring that memory forward. So yes, the more you, which means the more you remember something, the more you change the memory of that event. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I, a, a bit of a sort of technical question um, and uh, it just has to do with, uh, if you can give us an update on where things are. I know this was, uh, uh, Netflix with Shonda Rhimes and Matt Reeves, is that still on the tracks and in motion? Oh yeah. still still in process, still uh, moving forward. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm told, uh, kind of, uh, it's up next, so we'll see. Oh, good, good. I'm okay. not involved in that in the way I am in some of my other properties. So I'm, I'm not writing it. And, um, so I'm a, a little more out of the loop than I would normally be. Are you more of a con- story consultant? Is that sort of a, uh, I'm s- an executive producer on it, but, um, I'm, I'm not creating the show or the, or the movie. I mean, it's still up, kind of up for debate. If that's going to be, I think it's going to start as a movie and then branch out into TV shows. Okay. Of course that could change. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm kind of happy to be uh, not doing this one. It, it, <laughs> it, it sounds like it's going to be a, a beast. I, yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't understand how you wrote it. I, I, I mean, I, what was did you have a general approach and uh, we'll talk about dark matter in a second but for the time travel element did you have um sort of a framework in mind or how, how did you it, it's very complicated i'm wondering how you approach that um i mean i don't think of it as time travel it is but i don't really think i think of it more as memory travel but yeah in the very early stages of this book i was you know the idea of doing something in something having to do with time uh came up in conversations and I was just like, well, I mean, if I can't, this is a very well-worn genre of science fiction. And if you can't bring something like truly different and new to it, what's the point? 
because anytime you start delving into like time travel, you're, you're running into paradoxes, you're running into uh, impossibilities. And so I thought, well, I mean, let's just make all of the paradoxes and impossibilities a feature instead of a bug. And kind of the breakthrough was I was like, what if I actually started thinking of this book in early days as the reverse Marty McFly. So <laughs> at the end of Back to the Future, Marty McFly gets home and, you know, everything's changed and he's the only one who remembers it. And he's just enjoying the fact that his parents aren't losers anymore. And it's a nice house and everyone's lives kind of have their shit together. So I was like, well, what if it was the opposite? What if everyone did suddenly have new lives and they were, they had made all these different choices and were essentially living a different timeline, but they had a memory of the old timeline as well. They had these two competing, um, like data sets of memory and what does it do to the human brain and how do you wrestle with that? And that then that started feeling, well, it felt very complicated, eh? but it also felt new to me. And it was something I don't, that I hadn't encountered before. And it, and it gave me some confidence to, to move forward, even though the genre itself is pretty, uh, pretty uh, well-worn. Do you feel as though Dark Matter was a springboard to recursion? And are, I mean, they're not a trilogy, they're not related, but in a way they kind of are. Yeah, I think of them as two sides of the same coin. Is I mean, they're not they're both complete standalone novels. They they don't reference each other, completely different characters, but they are both um definitely dancing around the concept of reality and memory and kind of the path not taken. They come at them in very different ways. I I think Dark Matter is a much more intimate book, whereas Recursion is much more expansive and it kind of looks at it at a, at a, at a global scale. And it's one of the things that early on in Dark Matter, I contemplated like, well, what, 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 is the, what if the box had sort of gotten out in the world and it was more widely known and we saw, we saw the effect of it on a more grand scale instead of just sort of through the eyes of, of one character, Jason Besson. And I, I obviously I didn't do it because that was not the right thing for that story. But I saw Recursion as a, as a way to explore and on the global scale, um, a real profound technological breakthrough, like a memory chair. Yeah. And, and you've said in the past that so many of your stories are autobiographical. So what element uh, came out of your real life that found its way into recursion? Um, well, I mean, for sure, just the notion of memory and losing your memories. My, my grandfather came to live with us when he was about, when I was eight or nine and, and he was already in pretty late stage dementia. And he had a, like a room reserved for him at this uh, like memory care center, but it, it wasn't quite, he couldn't move in there for another six weeks. So I, I always remember that, that period of time when he lived with us, when his memories were kind of failing him and he was dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's and, and it made a, a big impact on me as a kid. And, it's just it's very strange the things that come that, the things that come out of your life when you least expect them because this is like 30 some odd years later when I was like huh I started thinking about that time again and then it really played especially into Helena's character and sort of her motivation for why she wanted to build this this chair yeah what was the process like um and does your process change from book to book are you Scheduling writing time, do you write at a certain time of the day in a certain place? Mm. No, I, I wish I could. My my life is too uh, in a general state of mayhem to like say <laughs> I'm going to write this time every day. Um, and each book sort of tells you how it needs to be written. Well, not immediately. That's unfortunately 
that's only learned very painfully and very slowly over the process. Um, I, yeah, every every book is different. Every every book has its own rhythm of of how you find your way into the story, where you hit roadblocks, how you overcome them. Um, I think it's probably a good thing. Uh, I, I have a lot of writer friends, and a lot of them go through the same thing. A lot of them also, you know, each book is they just sit down and write it. And yeah, they hit struggles, but it's not a big deal. It's like, oh, all right, got through this book again, and I'll do another one. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I've never been uh, fortunate enough to have it be easy. Do you crave routine or are you okay with the way it works now? I like, the, I think the way it works is, is good. I, I'm, I, I think it, it means that the, each book truly feels different uh, and feels like a different experience each time out. Um, Cause that's why I'm, I, I want to create, you know, the body of work where it's like, each book truly is its own thing and it doesn't feel like, Oh, here's just another, you know, slightly altered version of the same. I want each one to be really, really different and a real journey for the reader. Yeah. Which is kind of what your man, you have this mantra called no more small books. Can you explain yes. what that means? Um, it just means, well, I, you know, starting out in my career, I did, I, you know, I wrote some smaller books um, and in terms of having, uh, I think a small reach to an audience, like my early books, desert places, locked doors, you know, those were, um, really dark crime fiction, um, brutal and I'm very proud of those books. But there's only a certain segment of the population that was going to ever read those. And it just came to a point in time where I was like, I, I want to write bigger ideas. And I think a lot of times why writers don't chase those is because they're just afraid because it the first time you say hey i'm gonna like when i had the idea for wayward pines my first thought after i had the idea was like that's stupid that's just <laughs> that's crazy that'll never work um i think it's uh it's safe to it, it's safe sometimes not to like swing for the fences um but there's a lot of uh amazing rewards and reader interaction you get when you swing the fences especially when you put your not yourself autobiographically but like where you channel things that you're going through in your life and you aren't afraid to put them in the books i think it can make them much richer yeah yeah you had a self-described writer crisis a few years ago uh, how did you get into it and how did you get out of it if you're out of it mm -hmm. um I, yeah i think i'm out of it um <laughs> my you know it was basically before it's right before Weird Pines, uh, and I, it just came down to me. I think not being willing to like really take a take a swing at a big big idea, and once I started doing that, and, and also just taking taking the time to like it's okay if I'm not publishing a book every year. If it takes two years or two and a half years, as long as what I ultimately put out is like the very best that I can do. And I feel like it, like I'm breaking some new ground. That's all that matters. Yeah. Uh, you also did some co-writing earlier on in your career. Are you dabbling yeah. with any of that now? No, it's all, uh, all, uh, just me alone in the room now. <laughs> <laughs> you like it that way? I do. I love the co-writing too. I, I wrote a yeah. book called Dracula's with, uh, Jay Conrath and, F. Paul Wilson and Jeff Strand, which is still the most fun I've ever had writing. <laughs> it was just a pure joy. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, Conrath is a character. I can't even imagine yes. what that was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Uh, you, uh, for, for listeners who might not have read your stuff, your, your style is very cinematic. Is that something you, is that a way you've always told stories? Has that evolved over time? Where's that come from? I, I don't know. I, th- I think it's, um, it's always kind of been that way. Even from early on, I just tend to see, uh, I just tend to really see, I mean, look, I don't, I don't know how the writers do it or what that is like to be inside their brains while they're writing, but I, I very vividly see scenes unfolding uh, as I'm writing them. Um, in fact, I have sometimes a harder time with transitions because, you know, if you're writing a transitional period where you're like, say, covering several years or several months or even fuck, several weeks, and it's not like an in the moment, in real time scene, those are the ones that always take me a little more time to get those right. Whereas the scenes, if I can just like, be in the moment and see what the characters are doing, wearing, saying that, that comes so much easier. Hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. How, how much of your, uh, storytelling is, is planned versus, um, spon- uh, spontaneous. It's a mix. You know, yeah. I, I, I do make plans because you, you can't just run a hundred percent of the time on spontaneity, but, the best things that happen are spontaneous and they sort of intrude and overwrite what's been planned. So I, you know, I'll make, I'll, I'll make up the best outline I can. And I think I know where things are going, but it, it's one thing to write up a description of a scene. It's a complete other to write the scene itself. And once characters start talking and once you're inside their head, you know, the, the book becomes a very different thing. So as long as you're keeping an open mind and not, um, know blindly following the outline and you're allowing things to organically change that that's where i think the real the real like surprising plotting comes from mm-hmm. yeah you were uh you were one of the guys i remember reading very early on uh along with scott nicholson and conrath and uh oh yeah yeah i remember those guys like and... back in the run days yeah. and uh <laughs> yeah man yeah yeah, you you were you were kind of in the in the publishing circles there and and around yeah. those guys and uh, I'm I'm curious now ten years later you know what's been the most significant change you've seen in the industry? Hmm. Uh, I mean, my career has been a lot has had a lot to do with sort of reacting to what was happening in the industry and then making changes. So, like early on, I my first foray I was being published by St. Martin's Press and that didn't go so great and I probably wouldn't have had a career if the Kindle hadn't come around and if uh, KDP hadn't come about and there hadn't been um, another option for writers to publish and I jumped into that I was an early adopter on that uh, and started publishing um, some of my backlist stuff I published the only frontlist thing I ever published like what I think of as like A plus material, brand new front list was run. And I published that on KDP in 2011 because I I couldn't find publishers to publish it. Yeah. um, They're like, your track's too bad. And then, you know, I I could kind of see the, I felt like that was unsustainable, just being completely devoted to self-publishing. And I had the opportunity to work with Amazon Publishing, which is, you know, an actual national publisher. Yeah, you were with uh, Thomas and Mercer, right? Yeah, with Sturd and Weird Pines and Aban- and they reissued Abandon. And then, you know, in, what was, I guess, 2014, um, I was able to go back over to 
traditional publishing over at Penguin Random House with Dark Matter. And I've been just really um, so happy uh, to have gone back over there and, and for that for that to be working out as well as it is. Cause I, I don't, I'm not in a position now where I have to constantly second guess. I mean, I still have to be aware of it cause like nothing lasts forever, but I don't have to constantly second guess like the viability of self publishing or Amazon publishing or whatever, like there, you know, when, when they bring out one of my books, it's, it's a, a huge ramp up and they do it with such care and attention to detail and attention to the fan base. It gives me the freedom to be able to focus more on writing the books and taking the time it takes to write these books. Cause like, I mean, if you're self publishing, you don't have the luxury of publishing a book. Ever, you know, I almost, there's almost three years between dark matter and recursion now. And that's not something I would prefer to have happen again. I would like to publish every other year, but, you know, you can't do that in self-publishing. You've got to keep feeding that beast. And what I, that's okay for a time. But what I really want to do is just write challenging, sprawling sci-fi uh, books. And they just unfortunately take a minute to get my head around. Um, and I, I can't think of another scenario where I would be able to write these kinds of books. Yeah. I mean, if, uh, if you want to write, quote, small books, then you can kind of pump them out rather quickly. Um, mm -hmm. you know, make them somewhat formulaic, but if you're, if you're mm -hmm. looking for these grander ideas, yeah, that's, that's not something that you can just, uh, cook up in a matter of, you know, five weeks or six weeks. Yeah. 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 So I guess a good way to kind of, uh, come full circle and close our conversation is I've, I've asked you about the past, uh, your experience in publishing. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on what the next, say five to 10 years look like for the mm -hmm. industry. Well. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I'm very curious to see what happens with Barnes and Noble. Um, what happens, you know, how, how the independent bookstores continue to, uh, to thrive because they really are thriving. Um, you know, I, I, in 2010 or 11, I would have, you know, I, I kind of thought print was going to die. Uh, I thought it was going to go away. I, I didn't, I didn't think that audio would be such a huge deal. I don't know. I, I I, if I had to just guess, I don't think anything radical is going to change in, in the next five to 10 years. I think, um, I hope we get to a place where when a customer wants to buy a book, there, there's an easy method for them just to buy all formats with a click. And like every, you know, you get the hardcover, you get the ebook, you get the audio. And just to continue to add to that seamlessness of which format do I want to read? I mean, because I, I can only extrapolate from my own behavior. And I, when I'm reading a book, I have it in probably hard. In, yeah, I have it in hardcover and I have it in audio, in audio. And I go back and forth between the two. I am going, I am drawing back, I would say, from uh, ebooks in terms of in, in terms of reading on the Kindle. I, I like to edit my books on the Kindle. I know that's weird, but I'll send what I'll send pages to the Kindle just to read it in a different, just to see it on a different size screen and different right. font. It helps me look at it with uh, fresh eyes. But I I don't know. I, I don't. I think the the physical book itself is such a cool special thing. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's going to go away. Um, yeah, I'm curious about book clubs. Uh, I think book, I, you know, like book of the month club is becoming a real force. I'm curious to see how that continues to um, impact the publication of, uh, you know, 
my hardcovers and other people's um, they, you know, they've been great for dark matter and recursion. And that fan base is completely separate from say your, uh, your, e, your e-reader fan base, your audio fan base. But I don't know. I think the market, I think it's going to continue to be a pretty equal split between print um, audio and e, but I don't, I don't sit around looking in the crystal ball as much as I used to. Um, a lot more about the the stories than uh, than the industry, which maybe that's not a great thing, but I, I know it's a good thing for the for the books themselves. All right, that was Blake Crouch. What'd you think there, JD? Man, he he is an impressive guy. Um, you know, just to, across the board. I mean, it, one of the things that he, that kind of jumped out at me, and I never really thought about this before, but he mentioned um, when he writes the in the moment scenes. Those are the ones you know that he feels the most comfortable with. And you you had right before that you had told him that his work is very cinemagraphic, um, and and I've gotten that quite a bit too. And I, I've noticed the same thing. I never really thought about it that that before. But when you write a scene that's in the moment, it really does you know feel like it's a movie, like it's flowing. Um, and, and I personally, I agree with them. I find it way easier to write those than to write, um, you know, a couple paragraphs that covers like a large passage of time. Um, I've, I've always had trouble with those because to me, they feel very much you know, like passive voice. You know, like it's like I'm just trying to do a, an information dump to keep everything moving forward. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of jumped out at me. And the other thing that he, he brought up um, was something that I, I totally agree with. I'd love to see some kind of one click option when you buy a book. Yeah, you know, so you go out there and you, you buy the print book, and then automatically the ebook and the audio book are included. Yeah, you know, some kind of bundle deal, um, and and you know it's funny because Amazon does offer that. You know, as an indie author, you can you can like price your um, ebook at you know like a lower price if they pick up one of the other formats. Um, but the traditional publishers they don't want any part of that. They they like to you know force every everybody to buy the different ones. But you know, like Amazon's really got that that system tight. Uh, you know, if if you you know take advantage of it. You know, you can listen to an audio book, you know, like in my case, I go for a run every day um, when I don't sound like this. <laughs> um, and I listen to the audio book and then I get home and I load up the, the Kindle version of the same story. And Amazon, their system keeps those two things synced up for me. So it always knows where I am between the two, you know, so I can follow the same story. And, and that changed something for me because, you know, years before when that wasn't available, you know, I had stacks of books everywhere. So I had, you know, print books that I, I was reading. Um, then I had audiobooks that I was listening to, and then I had ebooks on my Kindle. Um, you know, so I was reading three or four books at the same time. Whereas now I can read just the one book and you know get through it a little bit faster, and it's it's more fun that way. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. He had some really interesting stuff too around career trajectory, which we we, we kind of talked a little bit about um, before the interview. But his his mantra of no more small books. Uh, I love that. I love that idea of. Of of going big, like going bold, and and how that kind of changed his career. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes back to what we were saying earlier. You just kind of have to write what you what you're feeling and what you really want to get down on paper, um, and and that's what he's doing. And he's seen, you know, he's fine with it taking a year or two years or whatever to get that book out. Um, you know, some people can can do that, and you know, then other people are you know on that trajectory that he was on before, where you know, oh, I got to get a book out every six months. You know, like there's indie authors out there that are trying to publish a title once a month. You know, and, and they're, you know, they're 200 pages long. They don't have time to edit them properly. The story is, you know, is weak at best just because, you know, they, there's no thought really put into it. Uh, Blake's doing it the right way. I mean, the other thing he, he mentioned was he, he cut 45,000 words out of recursion. Um, you know, half of writing is knowing what to take out, you know, and, and to be willing to do that. 
And, and he's right. I mean, like I, I do the same thing. Like I, I cut all those things out. I paste them into a, a special document and I revisit them either for that book or for another book. Um, I, I highlight the ones that I think might fit for something else or if they lead me down another, another path. Um, other things you can use them for. Jeffrey Deaver tends to pull a lot of that kind of stuff and he, he'll write like a short story. Um, Koontz does it too. You know, so he's got companion short stories that are like little spinoffs of the novel. So when he releases the novel, he can put out two or three short stories. Um, and that's a great way of, you know, if you're an indie to, to make a little extra income because you're selling those for 99 cents or a buck 99 a pop, you know, you keep your price point low. Um, but people buy the book, they love the book, they want to know a little bit more. So they, you know, they're willing to spend a, a buck, you know, and pick up another one. And it, all that stuff adds up. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could even use them as lead gens. You could, you could use them as like a way to get people on your mailing list too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're all, they're all tools. They're just, every word you put on paper is useful in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was uh, thoroughly enjoyed the the talk with Blake and he had some really great things, uh, especially around, you know, how he writes. And, and I, I think the, I can't wait to see what Shonda Rhimes and Matt Reeves do with, uh, over with his, I guess it's going to be a movie and a show from what I'm understanding. That's what he was saying. And, and, you know, like I'm on the opposite, you know, I'm in the same boat that he is on a lot of these projects. You know, they, they all kind of float that sort of thing. Like, Oh, we're going to do a movie. We're going to follow it up with a TV show. And until they get everybody in a writing room and they figure out exactly what they're doing, I don't think they're quite sure. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're going through that process. They're feeling it out and you know, his stories, they are big, you know? So you know, one of the problems that you run into, you know, like with Fourth Monkey, when I sat down and talked to the film producers, they immediately told me about all the things they had to cut out of the book in order to get the movie down to two hours. You know, we're going to take this character and combine them with this character. We think this person should be a female. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And you end up losing a lot. And when you talk to the people at like HBO and Netflix and Hulu, you know, they're the opposite. They're like, well, we love the book as is. What did you take out of the book? Like what extra material do you have sitting around out there that nobody's seen yet? Um, they love alternate endings. Um, you know, like, so if you write to, you know, like the book I'm writing now, I think I've got four or five endings down on paper now, um, you know, so that they can actually end the TV show in a different way than the book ends. And, you know, all that material, again, it's stuff that you cut out when you write the book, but it comes back and it helps you. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and he had mentioned he's an executive producer, um, you know, depending on the project, a lot of times they, you know, like I'm an executive producer on all of them. Um, I've only been called like twice <laughs> for, for my input. They, they try to keep the, the authors at an arm's length. And I think Blake is, you know, he, you know, he initially, he got heavily involved in some of these things. And I think he's realizing that it's a huge time suck. And, you know, when you just want to sit down at your desk and write that next book, you know, your phone ringing with somebody from Hollywood every 10 minutes is not helping. No, um, you know, so. No, and, when, to, and when your work is in the hands of like M. Night Shyamalan or, or Shonda Rhimes, like you're pretty good anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you, <laughs> You can take a quick breather there. You're, <laughs> you're in pretty, pretty good shape with that. So yeah, let, let it see, you know, see what happens with it. You know, either, you know, the, the book is his vision that that's his baby. Um, you know, whatever they end up doing, that's going to be their, their take on it. And you know, I'm sure they'll come up with something wonderful and something different. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope you guys all enjoyed that interview. We, we certainly did. Uh, who is on the docket for next week? Next week, we've got Kathy Reichs. Um, which most people probably know the character Temperance uh, Brennan from the, the TV show Bones. Um, Kathy's been around for a long time. She's got a, a lot of books in that particular series. Um, and, and for me as an author, it's, it's, it's a strong female character that I love to read. Um, and it's a cool take on, you know, on a, you know, like a detective and I'm, I'm doing air quotes here because you know, <laughs> Temperance Brennan, Brennan, she's, you know, she's not a detective, she, you know, she works in the morgue. Um, but you know, it's, it's a cool take on, on being able to tell that story without going to the detective model. Um, and, and in today's world, it's very difficult as an author to come up with something unique, you know, when it comes to that. 
Um, and, you know, like Jeffrey Deaver, you know, he's got Lincoln Rhymes. So you've got, you know, this, this character that's a quadriplegic in a, in a wheelchair who still figured out how to solve crimes. He's also got uh, Catherine Dance, um, who's, you know, studied the ability to tell when people are telling the truth or, or lying. Um, you know, so he tends to find very unique little twists. Um, you know, Jack Reacher is, is another one. I mean, he's technically, it's a detective model. Um, but he found a way to do it with a, you know, a very unique and different character. And I think as an author, I think it's really important to get out there and do that. Because I think if you can find something that is unique that nobody's done yet, um, there's a very good shot you, you, you might break out with it. Yeah. And if you can do what Kathy did and pull it from your real life and, and you know, what your passion is or, or how you make a living, that's even better yet. Yeah, that too. I mean, just knowing that the, you know, all the medical jargon is, you know, spot on, or at least sounds like it is, you know, like I'm not going to get out there and fact check her, but I'm pretty sure that her, <laughs> her, her data is, is, is good. You know, whereas you know, people like me, you know, like I've got to rely on experts to go through and reread and tell me what I did wrong. Um, you know, Google searches, you know, papers, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, for her to write in, in her field like that is that's, that's very helpful. Yeah. Excellent. So that's what we're looking forward to next week. And, uh, yeah, I guess between now and then, make uh, hope you have a great week of writing, and uh, see you see you next uh, next time. You too. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.